Okay, Jesse, last week's story was a big, wet mess. What do you have for me this time around? A young woman is looking for love in 1980s St. Louis after a decade of caring for her dying parents. After taking out a want ad in a Lonely Hearts column, she feels like she may have finally found the man of her dreams. But soon, the marriage becomes a nightmare. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty scams, spousal shams, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. If you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are absolutely thrilled this week to welcome and shout out a new set of absolutely wonderful patrons. Welcome to Natalie L., Samantha N., and Shawnee R.H., Jill R., Casey C., and Sherry Z., Jessica and Kelly S., Laura D. and Julie R. Tony D., Bia L., and Autumn C. Sarah F., Cindy H., and Megan R. Well, hello, Andy and everyone. How's it going? It's great. I mean, it's not as great as it was last week. <laughs> yes, we were together last week and it was phenomenal. And we are back on our sadly separate coasts. But we do have a fun new Patreon feature that we want to talk about. We were doing a watch party for a while, and and at the beginning of the watch party, we would jump on Zoom and we would chat for a little while with everyone, and then we'd all watch something together and just move the Zoom conversation to basically like a chat box instead. And we just were kept going overtime and having so much fun just doing the Zoom that we are moving that feature, which I think is on our third tier and up of Patreon, to a Patreon happy hour, the Love Murder happy hour now. Yeah. I mean, we did the watch party for a year and I feel like it was super fun, but the most fun we had was being able to be on Zoom with everyone. So we figured we might as well make it like a fun hang time instead of watching something and chatting like we're in a chat room. Yes. So new bonus Patreon, if you've been interested in Patreon and maybe now is the time to take the plunge and you've ever wanted to have a happy hour every month with Andy and I. I think we're going to be doing the third Thursday of every month, right, Andy? Thirsty Thursdays. <laughs> yes. Thirsty yes, third so Thursdays. So yeah. And also, if you have any suggestions or things that you like from other Patreons that you're a member of, we are all ears. We've officially had it up and running for a year. So we're looking for a way to refresh it, get some new maybe product on there, have some incentives that you're really excited about. So feel free to send us a DM or email and let us know what you love about some of the Patreons that you're members of. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Okay. Well, with all of that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. 
It's a tough one. This is a tough one, Andy. I think that this is going to go up on the uh, rageometer for you. Oh, no. I'm like only two sips in on my coffee, so I got to get going. <laughs> you better. You got to get the caffeine in your system so you can fuel that rage. <laughs> it was still dark when Lieutenant Dennis Nieri got the call that there had been a suicide in a fire reported on an otherwise pleasant suburban street outside of St. Louis, Missouri on May 6, 1986. It was 5.45 in the morning, and he was on vacation. This was absolutely not happening today. He told the dispatcher to have the officers process the scene, and then he rolled back to sleep. But only 15 minutes later, his phone rang once again. Apologetically, the dispatcher said, Lieutenant, I'm sorry to bother you again, but now we have two bodies. Oh. And one is really bad. This immediately jolted the lieutenant awake. Two bodies? A double suicide? A murder-suicide? In Baldwin? The suburb he was racing to hadn't seen a homicide in over 11 years. As he turned onto the street of the scene of the crime, he saw smoke still billowing from the home in question. The May morning was cool and breezy, but the half-burned house still emitted oppressive waves of heat. As he walked up to the scene, all of his senses were assaulted. The smoke was thick and black, hanging in the air and obscuring his vision. Two industrial fans had been set up and whirred as noisily as helicopters in an effort to clear the foul air. He could barely hear the officers who shouted over the din that the fire had originated in the garage. It had burned so hot that the two cars within had caught on fire, their tires melted into something you'd see in basically a dolly painting. Oh my God, crazy. But that wasn't what had gotten Lieutenant Nieri out of bed. Approaching the garage, trying to ignore the telltale smell of burned human flesh, he finally saw what had sparked the dispatcher's insistence that he intend the scene. Between the two blackened cars, an old-fashioned rocking chair lay overturned. Strapped tightly to the chair was the nude, charred body of a human corpse. The soot, odor, and heat in the 200-degree garage forced him back out into the driveway, gasping for clean air. But not before he had spied another human-sized shape further back in the garage. Everything would have to clear and cool before the police could truly begin to process the crime scene, but the lieutenant's officers reported to him that the owner of the house was a 31-year-old woman named Julie Miller Bullock. According to the neighbors, she was a really nice woman who was a homebody for the most part when she wasn't downtown at her high-paying job as a phone company executive. She had recently married. Her husband, Dennis, was supposed to be away on a business trip. The officers were attempting to reach him now. When it was cool enough for the lieutenant to return to the garage, one theory was immediately dispelled for him. The corpse was tethered to the chair with what looked like yards of tape. Thick, even rows bound the body to the chair from the calves, over the legs, the waist, crisscrossed at the chest, and fastened the hands and arms to the armrests. And Andy, even like the entire lower part of the head above the nose area and behind was covered with tape. Ugh. So it was clear that no person would have been able to do this to themselves. No. 
this was absolutely not a suicide. Also just seems very excessive. Extremely excessive. The garage was a morbid, smoky Pandora's box. The case would lead investigators down a sordid path of double lives, kinky sexual practices, psychiatric hospitalizations, and innocence lost. Ultimately, the killer would be revealed and apprehended, but not before someone faked their own death and attempted a flight from justice. Oh my gosh. And speaking of justice, it would take three trials to bring closure to this case. Oh my God. And some believe the punishment did not fit the crime. So this is an extremely unsettling case, and I'm sure that many of you have not heard about this one, which is always exciting for me to be able to bring a new true crime case to all of you guys because I know you're true crime fanatics and you've heard so many cases over and over again if you listen to podcasts like ours. But I found this one browsing thrift books, as I am wont to do. Yes. And the title of this book caught my eye. It's called Dying to Get Married. And the person who wrote it is a journalist named Ellen Harris. I thought it was a very good book. But it is a fairly brutal read. So trigger warning for brief mentions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, suicide, and sexual bondage. We'll be talking about that one a lot today. So with those warnings out of the way, let's go back in time and discuss newlyweds Julie and Dennis far before they met and potentially caused one another's demise. Julia Julie Miller was born on July 7th, 1954 in St. Louis, Missouri, and raised primarily in a New Jersey suburb after her parents moved with her little brother, Carter. Julie was described as an agreeable, sweet, and smart little girl. Julie's parents had a considerable age gap, so her father was already in his early to mid-50s when she was born. Wow, okay. Yeah, so as a result, he didn't really have the stamina to be a hands-on parent, which is nothing to say that you can't be a hands-on parent or have the stamina if you are in your 50s when your child is born. It just didn't seem like this was the generation and this was the type of guy that cared to be. Yeah, no, it's all about like what they want to do. And also, even if you don't have the stamina to be like a hands-on, you could still be a great dad in other ways. Exactly. He seemed more of the absent father type. And it seemed like the less that Julie had her father's attention, the more she craved it, of course. Julie ended up craving love and approval of basically anyone. And she tried to win it through being a quote unquote good girl, like a good girl of the time because she's born in 1954. Yeah. So, you know, she's coming of age in the 60s, late 60s. You know, she's a teenager in the early 70s. And that meant at this time that she never drank. She didn't smoke. She never experimented with sex. She was in the color guard and the National Honor Society. She ended up graduating in the top 10% of her rather large high school class. I think it was nearly 500 people. So that was pretty impressive. She's kind of like a brunette Sandra D before the Grease makeover. Yep. So Julie went to Montclair State for a little while, but despite her straight A's, she ended up dropping out to get a good job at an insurance company and ultimately would move back to her family's hometown of St. Louis with her parents to care for them as they both experienced significant health issues. 
Julie's brother Carter said to author Ellen Harris, her job handling medical claims turned out to be a blessing later for our family and a disaster for Julie. My sister ruined her life taking care of everyone but herself. Oh, no. I think we know so many people like this. Yeah. It's really sad. This is a really sad case. In fact, one of the police officers said that after reviewing all the evidence, which we'll discuss later, that outside of child sex abuse and murder cases, this was the saddest case they ever worked. Wow. Instead of going to school, dating, working her way up the corporate ladder, marrying and having kids like her peers were doing, Julie spent her 20s caring for her seriously ill parents. Her father was in generally poor health. He had an advanced age, obviously, but he also was prone to heart attacks and strokes. So he had multiple episodes of both throughout this four-year period. Eventually, they were forced to put him in a nursing home. And then he did end up passing away of pneumonia when Julie was 25 years old, at which point she was still caring for her mother, who had been diagnosed with late-stage breast cancer. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the hits just keep coming. Her mother was so sick when her father passed away that her brother said that Julie did everything. She planned the funeral. She took care of everything that was going on that you have to do at 25 at 25 years old, and basically from the age of 19 on until her mother eventually passed away two weeks after Julie turned 29, for a decade, all she did was care for them. And she was still working. So she was like, it was like two full-time jobs. One was trying to work and help provide for her parents and living in the house with them. And the other was before and after work or leaving work, she would have to take care of them 100% of the time because Carter was away at college. He was allowed to go and live his life. And I think that later on, we'll talk about this too. I think that there was some guilt associated with the fact that his sister gave so much of herself and he was allowed to actually go out and be a young person. I know, but your like word usage right there says it all. Like he was allowed to go out and be a young person and she, for whatever reason, felt like she was obligated to take care of her parents, which it's so hard. Yeah, she was the older sibling. She's a female. Often females end up in the caretaker role. And there was something seeking affirmation from Julie always, like looking for usefulness and to be loved. And I do think that no one could have talked her out of living a different way. Yeah. But it's hard to say because later on, she has some mental health issues that we'll get into. And the psychiatrist seemed to think they were exacerbated by her family condition, that maybe her mom did want her to be that dependent and that close to the family. It's possible. Yeah. So she had managed to score a new gig with the Southwestern Bell Corporation. And she really did do a great job working her way up to management. So professionally, she was still doing very well, but her social life had suffered during this decade she was caring for her parents. She didn't have a ton of friends outside of her colleagues. I guess she she had a friend that was a neighbor and then she went to work in this van pool. So this like group of like van poolers were kind of friendly. And then she had a couple colleagues she was friends with at work. But one of her colleagues said that she was shocked when she said, oh, if I get married someday, I'll make you my maid of honor. And she was like, whoa, we're like work friends. Don't you have anyone else? It was one of those situations. 
And she hadn't really dated at all. She definitely didn't date at all in high school. And it seems like she had some kind of just like non-starting affairs and usually with colleagues because that's who she was meeting. And people said that she made some bad decisions when it came to love because she just was vulnerable and kind of like a sitting duck for not so great guys. She also had a lot of money after her parents died. So they left their entire estate to her. So her mother had apparently a very, very big jewelry collection. Their house was worth a lot. They also, you know, it was life insurance, whatever they had left, it all went to Julie, which is fair because she was the one who took care of them for the last decade. So she had a lot of money and she was willing to spend it on these guys she was dating too. So one of her friends said about Julie in general, and especially with dudes, according to Van Pooler Jane Muster, as much fun as she was, as effervescent as she was, she was very lonely, very timid, and very easily led. Juliet Hart was a good little girl who always did what people would expect or want her to do. Anybody with a strong personality could sway her. Another friend noted that Julie's lack of social skills and naivete had resulted in a couple short-lived affairs with coworkers and at least one of whom had been married at the time of the affair. This friend said that Julie was a lure to creeps. She wasn't discriminating enough. They only had to look good on paper, be professional, nice looking, and earn a decent income. She became fixated over anybody in a three-button suit. The worst part was that she would buy them with gifts. After two weeks of dating one single coworker, his birthday came up. Julie went out and spent $300 on golf clothes for the man. It seems like she lost like the 19 to 29 years where you like kiss all the frogs. And you like date all the tools and douchebags and you like learn the lessons. It's like she missed that and she's at 19 at 30. Yes, that's entirely true, I feel like. And even like being born in 1954, I feel like a lot of people even went through that in their teens. And she was so fixated on being the good girl that she didn't mess up or do anything in that era. And then by the time she might have been able to in college, she was out of there and taking care of her parents. So there was a big arrested development in her life here, especially when it came to dealing with dating and romantic relationships. And that's kind of true, too, is that she does end up talking to a psychologist who spoke to author Ellen Harris as well. And that psychiatrist said that she almost suffered a delusional belief in like a Disney prince situation, that no matter how many times she went through these situations, with these disappointing men, she still held out faith that someday the right person was going to come along and then that was going to make everything okay. It was going to be the thing that fixed everything. And I know all of us have some semblance of that to a point. Like we all think like, oh, if I just lost X amount of weight or if I just got that job or if I just had a partner or something that maybe my life would be different. And she was very much fixated on the marriage part of the whole package. Yeah, but you also have to do like self-work in order to get there. You know what I mean? And if she's just repeating the same thing over and over again with these guys, then it's probably not gonna, you're not gonna evolve. Yeah, I think she was trying. I mean, she was in counseling. Oh, cool. Okay, good. Yeah, so she was in counseling. She was trying, but even the psychiatrist that was treating her said that it was like almost delusional. That's what his comment was, that it was like very hard to get through to her that she was doing the same thing over and over again. 
So over the summer of 1985, Julie decided to be proactive about her search for a partner and ran a personal ad in the newspaper. The headline read, are you a really nice guy? If yes, this nice girl wants you to read on. Oh, I know. It's actually really cute. In August, a very promising man answered the ad and Julie believed that she had indeed found her Prince Charming. His name was Dennis Bullock, and he was one year older than her. He had an MBA, and he worked as a senior management consultant for PricewaterhouseCooper, which was a big financial institution. It still is. I think they do different types of things now. So he was involved in various charitable and political organizations around town. And best of all for Julie, he was a real looker. There's a little, it's not quite this good looking, but I can see that he was like six foot tall and lean. He had almost like a JFK Jr. situation going on. Okay. People said that he was very good looking. It's hard to see because this case is not very widely covered in the media at all. So I am lucky enough to have some pictures from the book, but you you can't even find pictures of him Googling. So the, the pictures are black and white. Apologies for the Instagram this week, guys. So it's kind of hard to tell exactly what he looked like. And we're talking about like senior pictures and stuff. Yeah. But everyone said that he was very good looking. So she got his picture. She was like, damn. And this is, you know, she has this write up about him. He looks perfect. But still meeting somebody off a want ad in the 80s was like meeting somebody online in the 90s and very early 2000s. Friends are going to be concerned. It's a stranger. Which is so funny because it's also a stranger that you pick up at a bar, guys. <laughs> totally. But I think people love impressing the old school ways of meeting someone. And it's like, why is that better than, I mean, you know, I was the biggest advocate for you to get on online dating. You were. You were number one and you were right. Because that's how I met Nathaniel on ye old OkCupid at this point. I don't even know what it's called anymore if it still exists. <laughs> So her friends were a little concerned because I think that out of all the letters she got, this was the first one that she was like, oh my gosh, this guy is perfect. He's amazing. So she got a lot of letters back? I don't know how many she did. I think that Dennis was the only one she met up with though. Okay. And she decided to do some due diligence. She did have a friend who worked at Pricewaterhouse. And so she called that friend and they looked him up and he did work there. He did exactly what he said he was doing. And she worked at the phone company. So she looked it up to see if he paid his bills. <laughs> Oh my God, so funny. I mean, there's no internet now. There's limited ability to like check somebody out without getting a private investigator. Yeah, you can't find someone's Finsta. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she said, saw that he paid all his bills on time. He was who he said he was. Yeah, he's checking out. So she also found out through her friend at Pricewaterhouse that he had been totally straightforward with her because he said that he was navigating his divorce at the time. It was soon to be finalized. And he was straight up with her about it. And her friend said the same thing. Yep, he's separated. Everybody in the office knows it. So everything is check, check, check at this point. And so she's excited and she was in the van pool and she showed one of her friends a picture of him, the picture he had sent with his response saying like, isn't this guy cute? This is a little bit of foreshadowing. But I guess this friend said, Oh, Julie, he has the cruelest eyes I've ever seen. Isn't that crazy how one person can look at a photo and see what they want to see and another person can look at the photo and see like what they really are just by like the eyes? I feel like some people do that 
out of intuition. Like they've always had that. And then obviously some people from personal experience, but I feel like some people just know. They do. And that's why we always say trust your gut and like listen to when other people have intuitions. Obviously, you have to take everyone's opinion with a grain of salt. But yeah, so there's a couple like crazy little like precursors where there was a red flag that went up, but it was ignored. And this was the same type of situation. Like Julie was just so excited to meet this guy that she was like, oh, come on, stop it. So Julie and Dennis went for lunch and much to Julie's delight, Dennis seemed equally smitten with her from the get-go. As the couple got to know one another, they found out they had a lot in common. They were both professionals who were passionate about their careers. They were both corporate. They both journaled and were in touch with their feelings. And they had both lost someone close to them from cancer. Julie's mother, of course, and Dennis's younger sister, Cynthia, had died when she was only 21 years old. Oh, my God. That is brutal. Yes. So it seemed like they could really relate to one another. And at first blush, it really did seem that this would be a match made in heaven. But Dennis would not find out some things about Julie until a few more weeks into their relationship. And as for Julie, well, what Julie would eventually find out about Dennis would take months to uncover, and it would be much, much worse. So let's start uncovering some of Dennis's little secrets by digging around in his past, shall we? We shall, because I'm really curious about his ex-partner. So Dennis was born on November 29th, 1953, the eldest of two children who grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis with their blue-collar parents. Dennis grew to be a handsome, charming, and academically high-achieving teen, just like Julie. The difference was that while Julie had a sweet naivete and emotional loneliness, Dennis had a bitter, ungrateful, and sounds like deeply unlikable side that he kept hidden as much as possible. It wasn't possible to mask that side of himself always, though, and various teachers saw through it throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, you're with a student five days out of the week. Mm -hmm. You see that shit. So one said that he was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde character. Ooh, at what age? Like early teens. Another said, quote, while he had a silver tongue, it was slit. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. Like a serpent. Yeah, that's what I assumed. But that's actually a great line. So he was charming, but you could not trust him. He's like literally like Satan. (laughs) Yes, it's like every biblical or like folklore tale. Well, even his mother, a teacher also said that even though his mother babied him, she knew because she had said to this teacher in some sort of parent teacher conference, something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, if you turn your back on him, he'll take whatever he can. So they said there was some parental awareness that he was not a decent kid. Yeah, but then why are you, you're kind of like enabling him if you're babying him. Yeah, and so we don't know so much about this family. By some accounts, they were just like lovely blue collar people doing their best in their situation. So who knows? It's hard to say. I mean, everyone loves their kids so much that even if you do have a deeply troubled kid, like people are born psychopaths, what do you do? So yeah, he was, I mean, he was troubled. It's clear. In second grade, he was reprimanded for allegedly urinating on a little girl on purpose. 
What? That's like so traumatizing for that little girl too. I mean, second grade, that's not an accident. That's not like, oops, I didn't make it to the restroom. Growing up also, he was wildly jealous of his popular little sister, Cynthia, reportedly abusing and bullying her to the point where she moved in with friends for long periods of time to avoid living in the house with her brother. Which I'm going to, way later, like right at the end, I'm going to talk about some of my theories about that. So Dennis was also said to be resentful of his lower middle class parents and would demand expensive clothes and gourmet foods. He wanted them to buy the best of everything for him. Dennis always wanted to look nicer than he was, people said. He was always trying to get into a higher level of society. And Ellen Harris talks a lot in her book about what society was like in St. Louis and that it wasn't just like having money. It was like that you went to the right high school, that you were from the right family. It wasn't necessarily something that you could buy your way into during this era in the late 70s and early 80s when he was trying to become an adult, I guess. There's kind of like an American psycho-ness about him where he wants to always look the part, have the best things. And Cynthia, like I said, did die of cancer when she was only 21 years old. And though Dennis would later use this terrible event to cry and get sympathy from future girlfriends or partners, Somebody said that after the funeral, he had said to a friend, I believe, well, she's right where she deserves to be, that he thought that his sister deserved to be dead. Wow, that's horrific. So he's just shitty all around. But with this, like, passing good guy persona. Exactly. This handsome exterior, and he knows what emotional strings to tug to get the response that he's looking for. After graduation, Dennis went to school at Illinois College and began a trend of dating teenagers long after he himself had been a teenager. At 21 years old, he was engaged to a high school student whom he cheated on and left for yet another teenager. Wait, when, when you were saying teenager, like 16? Oh, yeah, they're all like 15, 16, 17. Oh, my God. So Dennis was 23 years old when he met... Dinah, his second fiance, and she was 16. Real Matthew McConaughey character, huh? <laughs> I keep getting older and they stay the same yeah. age. Yep. So six months into that relationship, which had began when he was cheating on his first teenage fiance, Dennis ditched his first fiance and then proposed to Dinah. Romantically and sexually inexperienced, Dinah said yes to both marriage and losing her virginity to Dennis. During their relationship, Dennis pressured Dinah into taking nude photos and performing sexual bondage. Wow. To a high school girl. Classy. A high school girl. Much later, they would wonder if Dennis was some type of serial killer or serial rapist because they would find a safe deposit box uh -huh. that had tied up pictures of teenagers oh, in the nude. Oh, my God. And Dinah was one of these women. And she said, I didn't know any better. He was my first boyfriend. He we were supposed to get married and he made me do it. So now you found that terrible photo of a terrible time in my life. Poor girl. So Dennis left Dinah after three and a half years and got with yet another teenager. Stop it, Jess. Yeah. His future wife, Karen. So this is the ex that he's talking about when he meets Julie. 
was at the time 18 to his 26 years old. What? Yeah, so he's like the Leonardo DiCaprio of this story if Leo's cutoff was 20 instead of 25. So he ended up cheating on Dinah with Karen. Of course, Karen didn't know this. And Karen and Dennis married in 1982 when he was 28 years old and she was 20. By now, Dennis had earned his master's in business and Karen was fast-tracking her career at a communications company as well. And it did seem like a perfect marriage. It was two good-looking, upwardly mobile young people making it happen together. Yeah, and at least she's over the age of 18. Yeah, she's in her 20s now. She's 2-0. Behind closed doors, however, things were far from perfect. I feel like I say that phrase a lot. I would assume that's the case, but let's hear. Yeah. By 1983, Karen was out earning her older husband and without advanced degree to boot. So he had an MBA. I'm not even sure if she had her undergraduate at this point, but she was crushing it. So whether it was resentment or retaliation for outshining him or just because he's a sicko piece of crap, Dennis began beating, belittling, and sexually abusing Karen. Unbelievable. He would attempt to force her into sex acts that she wasn't comfortable with. This is, guys, the trigger warning for domestic violence and sexual abuse. He would try to force her into anal sex and golden showers. Yeah, so he obviously has some sort of fixation with that from when he was a kid. Yeah, she refused. It's just so humiliating, too, if that's not, like, something that you guys are involved in, like, any sort of... Any sex act that you're not comfortable with that is forced on you is humiliating and scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. And for women, usually painful. Yeah. So especially if you don't want to do it, like your body doesn't respond well when you're terrified and you don't want to do something from your terrifying partner. Yeah. And this is, I mean, he went so far as she refused several times to a point where he got in the shower with her and she was like, oh, you know, we're nice, sexy shower time. That's fine. This is, this is something I like. And he peed on her. Oh, like he forced it upon her. Oh my God, that's disgusting. Yeah, it's really, really gross. Soon Dennis wasn't coming home. He wouldn't tell her where he was. And while we do know for a fact that he was the one cheating, and we do know that for a fact, there was multiple infidelities during this marriage and beyond. Dennis would basically project that upon Karen he would gaslight her. And we're talking also like back to the original like 1940s movie Gaslight where she and later Julie would have instances of hang up phone calls or weird noises outside when Dennis was supposed to not be home. Like he was scaring them into needing him. Oh my God, what a psycho. Yeah. And like then telling them like nothing was wrong and they were being crazy. He would accuse her of being unfaithful and he would demand to know where she had been, who she'd been with at all times, even though he is the one running around. No wonder he's not doing good at his job. He's too like busy, <laughs> literally gaslighting his domestic partners. It is crazy when they get into the investigation and they find out how many women he was talking to or sleeping with or communicating with. Yeah. Like, how can you be succeeding at your job if that's the case? It's like blowing my mind, too, because this is back in the day where you had to, like, write letters and make phone calls and meet people in person. Like, you can't, you're not like you're just on Instagram hitting up, like, 100 biddies in your DMs. Well, one night in May of 1985, just one year before the fire at Julie Miller's home, by the way, if you're keeping track of the timeline, 
Karen, Dennis's then wife, came home kind of late. So she had been at a company softball game. But the like not cute part of it was that she had begged Dennis to come to this game because she said that everybody else's partners and spouses always came to cheer on the team and then they'd go out afterwards. Yeah, that's fun. It's super fun. And she was getting really embarrassed because he never came, never. So she was telling everyone she's married. She had pictures of him, but he never came to anything that would support her. So she came home late. It was probably around midnight and she found the house dark. So she's like, hmm, he's either out because she never knows where he is or they didn't have find my friends in 85. No. So or he's asleep. And so she was like, well, if he's sleeping, I want to be quiet. So she like crept into the bathroom. She got undressed and she was like doing her routine. She started brushing her teeth when all of a sudden, again, trigger warning for domestic violence. He flew into the bathroom and he basically started assaulting her. He pushed her down onto the bathroom tile onto the floor. And he was basically losing his mind about where she'd been that he knew she was cheating on him. And she's like, you knew where I was. I wanted you to come to the game and and you didn't want to come. And so she has no idea why he's doing this to her. And he's now saying that she has sex aromas on her, that he can smell that she's been having sex. And she's just like, I don't know what's going on at this point. So she was trying to reason with him, but there was obviously no reasoning to be had with this man. And he kept hitting her. And she said that, Basically, she was like face down and he was twisting her arm behind her in a way that she thought he was going to break it. Oh, my God. And then when she couldn't reason with him, she started screaming. And then he put his hand over his mouth and was like, basically, I'll kill you if you don't shut up because he didn't want the neighbors to hear. And she said that later she was in the moment and she thought, oh, my God, he is going to kill me. And the last thing that I will ever see is this pink bathroom tile. And that's what she was thinking in that moment. And then, like, she's a really smart, badass, successful woman. She goes on to have a wonderful life, just so you all know. And she's like, if I can think that, then I can think about how to get myself out of this. I'm not just going to give up. So she managed to literally, like, fight him off, got up. And she's basically naked at this point. I think she was, like, in her underwear But she grabbed just a pile of clothes from the top of the laundry basket and ran down the stairs and her car keys were by the door and just literally ran out in the street, basically nude with a pile of random clothes and had her car keys. And she said that he was screaming at her, like, if you leave, don't ever come back. We're done. And she was like, good. And she got out and she said she was shaking so bad she couldn't even drive. Yeah. Could you imagine? It was horrifying. So she um, managed to get to a gas station where there was a payphone. And she was like, could barely dial her mother's number to come get her. And she stayed at her parents' house. The next day, she could not even move that arm that he had been pulling on, that he almost broke. So she went to her doctor who diagnosed her with a bad sprain. And she had tons of bruising. I mean, it was very obvious what had happened. That he beat her, yeah. Yes. And so the doctor sent her to the Women's Self-Help Center for Battered Women. And she got counseling and her therapist helped her see that her husband was a psychopath. Dennis had the following hallmarks that dovetailed with the description of a lot of psychopaths. Karen had found out that he had used other names and aliases. What? Yeah, she had discovered like a notebook of his other identities. 
So that's something psychopaths do. He obviously lied. He had no problem exploiting others for his own gain. He lacked close relationships. And he made misogynistic and violent sexual demands. He was physically violent, and he had absolutely no guilt or remorse about any of it. Wow. Wow. Hey, guys, it's Jesse. This week, Andy and I are so excited to share one of our favorite podcasts, Murder, She Told, by one of our favorite true crime buddies. If you grew up as a latchkey kid in a small town, you probably assumed you were safe. Gosh, I know I did. Murder wasn't something that people really talked about or thought happened in small towns or rural areas. But as we know, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Murder, She Told is an award-winning true crime podcast created by victims advocate and our friend Kristen Seavey that dives into the lesser-known cold cases and true crime stories from Maine, New England, and all small towns from away. Murder, She Told uses detailed storytelling with an investigative twist, weaving in original interviews with the people closest to the case. And guys, that's really one of the most unique parts of the show. Rooted in deep research, straightforward narratives, and the victims and their family at the center of every story, Murder, She Told will speak to any listener no matter where they call home. One incredible story you might want to try first is from last December and is the two-part story of James Hicks. Hicks is a serial killer you've probably never heard of from Kristen's tiny hometown in Maine, who preyed on three women and almost took a fourth. This case features an interview with a detective who broke the case. Learn more at MurderSheTold.com and find Murder, She Told now wherever you get podcasts. So Dennis, at the same time, because I think he's trying to get ahead of this, went to a psychiatrist who reportedly told him that he had a chemical imbalance. And so Karen would later say that he basically came to her and said, well, I went to see a doctor and he said that I have a chemical imbalance in my brain and that's why I did these terrible things, but I'm going to go on medicine and I'm going to stay in treatment and I'm going to be such a good husband to you. And she was like, you don't get a doctor's note from nearly killing me. Yeah, no, but you know, she's strong. I think a lot of women that are with someone, a lot of men who are with someone would definitely like give the second shot or go back and try to like be sympathetic and try to understand like what they're going through. So it's like, she's just really strong. I mean, she had a remarkable sense of self at such a young age. I mean, that's unbelievable. I don't know if I would have that. No, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And this is definitely not to demean anyone who's been in a domestic violence situation and hasn't been able to leave because what we're saying is it's extremely difficult. And she did go to several weeks of marital counseling with a minister with him because he asked for it. I think she was still living with her parents at the time, but she agreed to go to counseling before they officially got divorced. And she said that she quit like several weeks into it because the minister suggested that she was doing something to trigger Dennis's behavior. Wow. Yeah. She was like, yeah, you know what? I'm done. Nice knowing both of you. Goodbye. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, naturally, Dennis already had a new girlfriend. And even though he had this new girlfriend and a lot of side chicks, he continued to ask Karen until their divorce was finalized months later towards the end of the year. 
On August 9th, 1985, Dennis did three things. Number one, he wrote a letter to his estranged wife, Karen, in which he said he hated her because he could not trust her. And he could not trust her because he loved her. And he basically was saying that like this like love and hate go hand in hand, blah, blah, blah. He said that the pain she had caused him would kill him. And then he wrote, quote, may you burn for what you've done. Hmm. Number two, the second thing he did on August 9th was to send his new lover, Christy, a birthday present. It was a floppy silk bow tie. Floppy silk bow tie? What? (laughs) (laughs) Floppy silk bow tie? They described, this must be an 80s thing because they described it as a floppy silk women's bow tie. It's like a pussy bow? (laughs) Andy's Proper confused over here. Yes. Well, it'll make more sense because in the birthday card, he wrote, maybe we can find a different use for this. And Christy would later say that the couple had been engaged in bondage type sex for a little over a month at that point. This is a point to remember for his defense later on. Well, the third thing he did on that day, August 9th, was respond to Julie Miller's Lonely Hearts want ad. I mean, if you put even like a fraction of this amount of attention into his work, he probably would have done really well professionally. (laughs) I think so too. But isn't that sad? Also, the funny thing is, is that these are all things he had to mail. So I'm just imagining him going to the post office, whistling, getting my hate letter out to my ex-wife, getting my sex birthday present out to my new girlfriend, getting my want ad response to my new gal. (laughs) So Julie thought, going back to Julie's portion here, that she had found the perfect man because he made it seem that way. He was very good at pretending. She, of course, did not know that Dennis would not be faithful for one second of their months-long courtship and marriage. In fact, this is the part that blew my mind. Police would later say that over that period, I think, believe, like between like the ending of his marriage to Karen and when they find him after the fact, that he was talking to 53 different women, like basically dating 53 different women in some capacity. But I did say earlier that there was something that Julie maybe wasn't telling Dennis. Maybe she didn't know about herself at this point. And there was really only one thing. And that was that Julie suffered some seems like significant mental health issues. I think it was around four to six weeks into their relationship that Julie suffered a breakdown. Oh, no. Yeah. So a jeweler at a store that she'd always shopped at with her mother, like the two of them had always gone, they had a passion for jewelry, apparently, said that she came in by herself and he overheard her speaking to her dead mother out loud, like saying, mom, what do you think? Do you like this piece? And it was different than like somebody just being like, oh, my mom would really like it. It was like she was acting like she was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think like, I think it's normal to like think that stuff and maybe even like say something like you're thinking it out loud, but she was like conversing with someone who wasn't there. That was at least what the shopkeeper made it sound like. And then there was a neighbor who said that she had called her. So Julie called this neighbor and said, you need to come over. And she said that Julie was hysterical. She was having a fit about how ugly she perceived herself to be. And she was crying. And she said that she was so ugly. She wanted to throw acid on her face. 
So there are two witnesses that say that Julie was obviously unwell, but there are also some people close to Julie who thought the timing of this breakdown was suspicious. That even when her mother had died, she had been depressed, but she hadn't had what sounds like these types of like a psychiatric break that it seemed like she was having at this point. And so there was some suspicion that somehow Dennis was exacerbating her issues, especially given that her brother said that he didn't know that there was something wrong with her. Although somebody at the hospital said that she had said that she had told her brother. I don't know. But he said that it was very weird because she had never had any desire to be hospitalized before, even though she was already talking to a counselor who was managing it, her mental health. And he was like, well, why did, why did you go to a mental hospital? And she said it was Dennis's idea. Dennis told me I have to go. So there's that. This is all happening around the time that they're together. Also, Dennis, at this point, we know for a fact, already knew exactly how much money Julie had because he was found, like he had journals and diaries and stuff, and he had figures and notes written down. So he knew that between most of her assets from her parents – that she had inherited, including, I think, with the value of their house, the modern day equivalent of about $850,000. So gross that he like wrote it in his journal. Yeah. And he's been dating her for a little more than a month and he already knows this about her. So we know that she definitely does have some mental health issues. He obviously knew that. He knows how much money she has. He knows that she's head over heels for him. And now he's like, well, let's do the right thing. So he looks like the right guy, looking like he's giving her help, but that also incapacitates her. Now she's away. He can do whatever he needs to do, wants to do. So this was just a disastrous combination of a vulnerable prey and a psychopathic predator. And, you know, I'm not diminishing Julie's mental health issues, but this guy is, it's kind of like, it's like a almost Victorian scheme, like seduce a woman, gaslight her, steal her assets, and then get her declared mentally incompetent. Yeah, no, it's horrifying. Yeah. In late September, 1985, Dennis checked Julie into St. John's Mercy Medical Center, and she would end up being hospitalized for seven and a half weeks. Whoa, really? Yep. So for longer than they were together at this point. At various points during her hospitalization, Julie was diagnosed with affective disorder, depression, OCD, borderline personality disorder, and I think eventually bipolar. So obviously this is a lot. This is a lot of things to be diagnosed with. And author Ellen Harris theorized in her book that Julie may have been misdiagnosed, given the fact that, and she wrote, quote, her diagnosis looked like a Chinese restaurant lunch menu with two from the depression column, three from the disorders column, et cetera, like ordering a number one. A psychiatrist the author consulted with believed that Julie was severely depressed and sometimes severely depressed people who are passive and dependent can mimic borderline personality disorder. Yeah, but so instead of like actually evaluating that way, they're just assigning all these different disorders to her. All these different labels, different medications. So now she's like really thrown for a loop. Yeah, and if you're taking a bunch of different medications that you don't necessarily need, of course, you're going to start to exhibit signs of other. Yes. So she's like really out of it at this point. So the doctors that she saw at this hospital believe that the root of Julie's issues came from her relationship with her parents, a distant father, a smothering mother, codependency for years and years, 
And it was also theorized at some point that Julie had perhaps been sexually abused as a child, maybe by her father, and that that's why her mother was so overprotective, that there was a real threat in the household. And that's why her mother was smothering and trying to overcompensate for that relationship. Now, Julie denied that her father had abused her. But at one point, a friend said that she had alluded to something in her childhood that had happened that had ruined her life. But the friend even said she never said what it was. She never told me she was sexually abused. So I read some reports that people have said, like, well, she was sexually abused. And that's why she was so vulnerable to this guy coming into her life. But we don't know that for a fact. That's speculation. What everyone agreed with was that Julie was majorly lacking in self-esteem and she had serious issues with dependency. And when she was in a weakened state, fresh out of the hospital, who do you think was there to pick her up? Good old Dennis. Good old Dennis. By every description, Julie was desperate to keep Dennis in her life. I mean, she's so her brother was married at this point. He's now starting a family. I don't think he lived particularly close to her. It it didn't sound like super far, but it didn't sound like, you know, obviously they weren't popping over to each other's house for dinner. And her parents are gone, the people she devoted her entire life to. And she just got out of the hospital. So she was like, this is my everything. I'm clinging to this man. And she even before meeting him had this idea that her husband, the man she married, was going to be her savior. So it's a very potent and terrible combination of things that are happening right now. And so she would run errands for him. She would cater to him in every way. She like let things slide. And in exchange, Dennis assured her that the relationship was headed towards marriage, which is what she wanted more than anything in the world. Though she said nice things about Dennis and that she was fine in her van pool when she went back to work, she had gone on disability from her job, thankfully, and they welcomed her back with open arms. That's amazing in the 80s. Which is really great for the 80s, absolutely. Things were not good, obviously. Dennis ditched her on Christmas, leaving her completely alone because Carter was with his in-laws. And she wrote in her diary on Christmas Day, I have no self-esteem, no self-confidence, especially sexual self-confidence. The drugs I'm on make me feel different. But most of all, I am paralyzed with anxiety about my future. In January, she recorded that she had discovered that Dennis had copied down her investment account numbers in his address book. Oh, so she saw that. She knew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the red flags were piling up. Julie and three of her colleagues decided to visit a psychic for fun. It was just one of those things like lunch break, like, let's just stop at the psychic. It'll be a hoot. And the psychic would later say that as she read Julie's cards, fear came over my heart. I looked at the man in her cards and saw that he looked like the devil. Just like you said, Andy. Oh, my God. I know. I'm such a psychic. (laughs) You should start yet another job. If like your 13 other jobs and working at Home Depot don't work out for you, you can also add psychic to the mix. And so the psychic said, quote, I said, if you marry him, you'll be dead by May 8th. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Now, this is the psychic talking to the author. Okay. And she gave her that direct quote. The psychic was not named in the book. It just said the psychic. But she was with three other people. So they were there to say whether that was true or not, I think. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. 
And indeed, Dennis had been pushing Julie to marry him ever since his divorce from Karen had finalized in late December. Much to the surprise of all who loved Julie, she finally acquiesced and agreed to a quickie, no-frills ceremony. No. Yeah. It's really sad, too, given that this was a girl that dreamed of her wedding day her whole life. Opposite of me. She (laughs) is definitely the opposite of you. She had doubts. But she did end up telling her Van Poole people that she was going to get married the next day. It was just like a weekday. It ended up being February 22nd. But Julie confided in a colleague and a friend named Terry that she was unsure of the marriage because Dennis refused to wear a wedding ring. So they had talked about this leading up to the marriage that, you know, she needed to get him a wedding ring. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to wear one. But you have to wear yours. He didn't get her an engagement ring. He got her like a cheap wedding band. But all of those things were things like she could obviously look past. But the most troubling thing was that he told her that after they were married, that she was to transfer the entirety of her inheritance into a joint account with him. So this is like the most, I can't believe that this case isn't like broadly covered, but it's like the most love murder case I know. It's just all of the red flags. It's just like you can't even see in the sea of red flags over here. But she married him anyway. And apparently she called her brother on the day or the day before they were going to get married and was like, I just realized I really want you there, but we're like getting married like today. And he and his wife were like, oh, shit. They they didn't know what to do. They were like, of course, we'll come. Like, where are you? Like, we're going to call out of work. We're going to like get there. It might have been a Saturday. I'm not sure. But anyway, so it was like some random day. And they said that they didn't even have anything to give them as a wedding present. They brought a bottle of champagne from their wedding and they managed to find a wedding photographer really quick. And they were like, we'll give you a wedding present as wedding photos and we will give you this bottle of champagne. They just wanted to be a part of her big day, obviously. Now, Dennis was not treating it like a big day. Apparently, he was at his house with his ex-wife. He was with Karen. Why is she there? Well, they were wallpapering their house to sell. Okay. But, like, by herself? like I don't know. I don't know. I just know that he was at her house, and she was there, too, because she said she recalled that they were supposed to be doing fixing projects up all around the house that day. And he was like, oh, I have to leave because I have to go do something. And he, like, took off. And then went directly to this wedding chapel that was like, sounds like a kind of like a drive-by type place. And Carter, his wife, and Julie were just waiting there for him. He was late. And then he walked in and he barely said hi to his brother and sister-in-law and said, let's get this thing going. Wow. Was Carter like, what the fuck? Yeah, he was just confused because he was like, she had dreamt about her wedding for as long as I knew her. And this was not the way any of us had ever imagined it. But he was trying to be supportive. But then they were like, we'll take you out to lunch afterwards. I mean, this is happening, I think, in the morning, in the early afternoon. They're like, we'll take you out for lunch and we'll celebrate. And apparently they went to this like Cajun restaurant and he ordered something, got up to take a phone call. So he must have gone to a pay phone in the restaurant or something, then came back and said, we have to leave. And the wedding photographer was on their way to the restaurant. Because based on when they had been able to book, they hadn't been able to get them for the actual ceremony. So they were supposed to come and then they were going to like take pictures in like, I think a park or something. And Julie's like, I guess we have to go. And so the wedding photographer was like, okay, well, you can come to my studio. 
And you guys can do wedding portraits. So we'll book a time for you to come to my studio and we'll do that. And the saddest thing about this entire thing is that on the day that they were supposed to do that, Dennis didn't show up and Julie took wedding portraits by herself. No. Yeah. I think they have the picture in the book. So, of course, there was no honeymoon. There was no romance. I mean, Dennis had himself a nice little honeymoon with a different woman. Like two weeks after they got married, he went on a ski trip with some society woman that he was also dating. Yeah. I don't even understand how this can happen. Yeah. And before he left, he was like, oh, we just need to do some um, marital paperwork just to make sure everything went through properly. And he got Julie to go to a notary public and sign some papers. And those papers turned out to give Dennis power of attorney. Oh, my God. So he now was able to control Julie's real estate, stocks, bonds, bank accounts, everything based on the specific paperwork that he had signed or she had signed rather. And I mean, certain health things, I think, for her. Uh, Yes, especially given that he's already made sure that she has a history of being institutionalized. Well, things went from bad to worse. Dennis did not move in with Julie until their two-month anniversary. He was living in the house he used to share with Karen until it was sold, and then he begrudgingly moved in with his wife. Around that time, she had discovered that Dennis had lied about depositing his money as well in the joint bank account. So she kept bringing it up, like, hey, I already put all of my inheritance money in our joint account, like you asked me to. You're not putting any of your money in. He had also made sure that he was the beneficiary on all of her life insurance policies, but she was not the beneficiary on his. I mean, did he even have one? He had one through work, because this is back in the day where you got a life insurance policy when you worked at a company. Even when I worked at my corporate job in 2011 through 2013, they gave me a life insurance policy. Yeah, that was like a real corporate job. That was so corporate Yeah. I had a 401k, had to wear suits, <laughs> be there at eight in the morning in a downtown office, take the train to work. So not me. It's so weird. It was funny, though. It was a time. It was a time in life. I had to try it out. So he had a life insurance, but she wasn't even mentioned on it, obviously. So she told a friend she was getting uncomfortable with the whole thing. Why was only her money in the joint account? Why had she even moved it then? It just gave him access to her money. That was it. Yeah. And and what the friend say? The friend was like, get your money out of there. So she was a little scared to do that because she was afraid, of course, that he's going to notice that she took the money out. Yeah. And he's scary. And he's scary. She was definitely not feeling it anymore. She had let herself, I think, go along with this, thinking that maybe marriage would be different somehow. And she told a friend at work that sex with Dennis was violent and cruel. It had only gotten worse when he moved in. She said that he tried to force her to do things that she wasn't comfortable with, and he had held her down and forced some things on her, and it was alluded to the fact that it sounded like anal sex. In April, her fellow van poolers were shocked when she showed up to go to work with what looked like four or five cigarette burns on her face. What? Those are kind of unmistakable. Well, they said that she wasn't somebody who ever really wore a lot of makeup. And so one day she came in with like basically like pancake makeup on her face. And when you looked closer, you could see the cigarette burns that she'd been trying to cover up. And they said also that she was brushing her hair in a way that it looked like some of her hair might have been pulled out. Oh, my God. So they were concerned and they did ask her, you know, how's things going? And and she just would 
just say everything was fine. So not everybody knew what was going on. They just knew something didn't seem right. On Sunday, May 4th, Julie called a friend in Florida and told that friend that she was afraid of Dennis. And she did want to kick him out of her house, but she was afraid, and I think he probably threatened her with this, that he would have her institutionalized because she had given him power of attorney. Did she know she was signing that at the notary or did he? I don't know. Okay. Because I feel like there's been so many instances that we've covered where like people have slipped paperwork in. Yes. We just talked about that with the Darren and Charlotte Mack case. This case, I don't particularly know whether he was like, oh, we're just signing more marriage license paperwork and he slipped this in or whether she knew willingly and gave him that. Because he's very, I mean, given the right target, I guess he was pretty compelling. I mean, cult leaders get people to willingly sign away their life to them. And they're like, yeah, and it's like multiple people. Yeah, so I can't say for sure whether or not she knew about this, but she did know at that point enough to be scared about it. Uh, So that was on Sunday, May 4th. On Monday, May 5th, she did confide to a friend about the joint account money, and that friend was like, you go to the bank right now and you get that money out. So she took the money out. And so that night she was talking to the same friend and she was like, well, he's gone for work tonight. So he's not at our house anyway. Do you want to come over, have some pizza and we can, we can talk. And that friend was like, actually, I'm leaving for a a business trip tomorrow morning. So I have to go home and pack and I have to do some stuff. She was also watching part two of a Ted Bundy miniseries. No way. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm going to watch part two of that Ted Bundy miniseries. And she was like, oh, Dennis had it on last night and I won't watch it because I hate that kind of stuff. I won't watch anything that's violent or scary. So she's like, if you want to watch that, like it's best you don't come over anyway. Because this is also, again, back in the day, like if you want to watch part two of your thing, you had to be in front of the TV at a certain time. You're not going to see it. (laughs) So that night, her friend didn't end up coming over for those reasons. And it would be the last time anyone save her killer saw Julie Miller Bullock alive. <sighs> the next time anyone saw Julie, it was horrified firefighters who found her naked, strapped to a rocking chair, and most certainly deceased. The other body that was reported at the scene belonged to... Not Dennis. No, it was a pile of drywall that had fallen during the fire in a way that resembled no a reclined human body. I definitely thought it was someone because you said a fake death. Like I definitely thought he killed someone else. Oh, the fake the fake death hasn't happened yet. We are still getting into the story. But yeah, I didn't mean to uh, red herring y'all because well, you that, did. They really you did. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, but. At the same time, he did get the call that there was two bodies. That was what the dispatcher told him. And it's what the firefighters believe. So, you know, I'm still using the source material. I'm not going AWOL over here. And they're still trying to contact Dennis. So at this point, they're like, okay, Julie's body was bound so tightly to the chair in such a way that it would have been impossible for her to do it to herself. And they both now knew that the body was not Dennis's because it wasn't a body at all. And there was absolutely no sign of forced entry at all. I think the garage door had been closed as well. So they're like, obviously, we need to find her husband. This is suspect numero uno at this point. While they were checking up on Dennis, who was allegedly in St. Paul, Minnesota, on a business trip, the medical examiner conducted an autopsy on Julie's charred corpse. 
Dental records did, by the way, confirm that it was, in fact, Julie. Julie was a tiny thing. She was only about 5'2 and 125 pounds. And despite her diminutive size, the medical examiner unwound 76 feet of tape that had been wrapped around her body. Unbelievable. So excessive. Psycho. Yep. And they said that it was done in like perfectly horizontal lines. It was like unwrapping a mummy. Like it had taken time and surgical precision. They could tell that Julie had not died in the fire because there was no evidence of soot or any dark matter in her throat and lungs that would have indicated. He was just trying to get rid of everything after, huh? Yep, that she had inhaled it. She had definitely already been deceased when the fire began. And it was pretty easy to discover what had actually killed Julie because underneath all of this tape, which had covered her entire lower face and head, Julie had been gagged with two terry cloth gags that she had asphyxiated on. So he had shoved these gags basically down her throat in her mouth and then taped her up, mm. which it was terrible. The medical examiner said it could have taken her a very long time to truly asphyxiate to death with this or trying to keep the gags out of her throat while she was not able to move. Very, very, very terrible. So the medical examiner noted that there was, again, we've said this a million times, but no way that she was going to be able to tape herself up like this. And in deaths where there is some sort of bondage situation, like 95% of the deaths that come from something like this is usually a dude like doing the autoerotic asphyxiation where they're like tying themselves up or trying to choke themselves up in some way. And there's not another partner there. And then they end up passing away because no one's there to fail safe it. They said in, in partner situations with bondage, there's a fail safe because there's somebody there that if things start going sideways, they cut you out or they make sure you're safe. And so that's why it's rare that it happens with a couple. And also another thing is that in bondage, some people do like their head all the way taped up, but they always put like a cap or something on, or they put some sort of barrier between hair and skin and tape, because otherwise you'd be ripping hair out at the root. And the medical examiner said that this is a professional woman. This is supposedly happening on a Monday night. She would have to get up in the next morning and, and go to work. Like, she's not going to go to work with her face and hair missing. Yeah, no. But she's also going to work with cigarette burns in her face. So I don't think he really cares about her. No. So they were like, this just does not seem like it was some sort of sex play gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah, because so many people are into BDSM and you don't know it. You know what I mean? Like, because you're not walking around with all this horrible... <laughs> Abuse. Those are abuse. That's abuse. Not if there's if there's an accident during sex play, somebody would call nine one one. They wouldn't be like, "Well, I guess I'll just set the garage on fire." Yeah, no, that's not what happens during an accident. So yeah, it was a pretty easy. Uh, this is a homicide by the medical examiner. The only unfortunate thing was that because her body was burned so badly, they they couldn't tell whether she had any bruises or cuts or like defensive wounds. Yeah, no. I mean, I feel like her friends saying that she yes. may have already when she came to work could be enough. Exactly. Meanwhile, Dennis was found in St. Paul, right where he was supposed to be. 
He seemed shocked, if a little overwrought, at his wife's murder, and he flew home immediately to speak with the police. In his initial conversations, he suggested to the police that Julie was suicidal, but he also could not rule out that she had been up to something kinky with a lover because she had been, quote, a liberated woman, if you know what I mean. Wow. Which it seems he had tried to basically plant the seed of that by staging the home because just laying around, he left a vibrator and three different sex books, sex manuals. And Julie's housekeeper of years and years, who, by the way, he had made Julie fire, of course, and he had made her get rid of her dog because he was really just completely isolating her, said that this was totally bullshit. She was like, I cleaned her house for years before this guy came on the picture. I went through everything that she's ever owned, like in cleaning, because we had a very good relationship. She didn't have a vibrator. She didn't have these sex books. She was like a prim and proper woman. If someone does have a vibrator, you see it lying around every once in a while. Yeah. And it's also, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that he's trying to like set the scene. But we've like, this is so his type of personality who thinks he can get away with it. Like he thinks he's tricking the cops, you know? He does. He does. We'll get into the, the, the fake death part too, where he thinks he's tricking the cops too. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, even apparently in one of these books that he was trying to say was Julie's, it's literally said, like he must have forgotten about this, like property of Dennis Bullock. Oh my God. Oh my God. So yeah. So he's like, look, she was hospitalized. She's suicidal. So maybe it was that. I don't know. Also, she's a little freaky deaky. What can I say? So it could have been anything, but I'm obviously very sad about it, but- It couldn't have been me because I was 531 miles away in St. Paul with my colleagues and they saw me Monday evening. And then when I found out about it through one of my coworkers on Tuesday mid-morning, I was there as well. Now, this is an eight hour and 40 minute drive, according to Google, away from where he was. So this is looking like a pretty good alibi. Well, his alibi fell apart when he failed to show up for his murdered wife's funeral. Yeah. Yeah. So a colleague who had been with him had, by the way, just found out he was married, that he didn't find out until after Julie was murdered because Dennis didn't tell anyone he was married. In fact, on his way to the wedding, he had run into a colleague or friend, I'm not sure which, but maybe both. And said that he was having a really hard time meeting people after his divorce. And he's on his way to his wedding. So he obviously didn't intend to stay in this marriage in any capacity. He didn't want people to know about it. So the colleague had found out about it on Tuesday morning when he's like, oh, shit, my, um," like, they're like, your wife died in a fire. And they thought that they were still talking about Karen. And he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you I got married. So the colleague is like, whoa, okay. And he was like, well, I have to go to this funeral to support Dennis. And when Dennis didn't come to his own wife's funeral, the colleague went straight to the police and said that he had actually not been with Dennis the night before. Good for him. Yep. They had flown in together and he had seen him the next day, but he had not been with him at night. And he said that Dennis had even said can you make sure the police know I was with you last night, even though he hadn't been? Good for him going to the police. Yeah, he was like, okay, this is sketchy. 
So after some digging, the police would discover that Dennis had used one of his aliases and a fake ID to travel back to St. Louis by plane, murder his wife, and then once again fly back to St. Paul. What was his alias? Do they have it? Oh, my God. It's it's John Jackson. John Jackson. (laughs) John Jackson. Yeah. And so a direct flight, which they have plenty of from St. Paul to St. Louis, is 90 minutes. Yeah. No, it's so quick. Plenty of time. Unfortunately, by the time the authorities discovered this, Dennis was in the wind. Oh, no. Yep. An APB, all points bulletin, was put out on Dennis on May 11th, which was five days after the murder, and it immediately rendered a lead. So apparently two days earlier, the APB went out on a Sunday. Two days earlier, it had been a Friday. These three guys who were bricklayers had found a abandoned car near a bridge on the Mississippi River. Okay. And they kind of like peeked in and they saw that there was two envelopes like on the dash. But they couldn't get into the car and then they didn't really think anything of it. And one of these bricklayers was watching the news on Sunday and they told the story of Dennis saying that he was at large and that he was last known to be driving this exact vehicle. So the bricklayer called the police. They went to investigate and it was actually Dennis's mother's car that he had been driving. So they get into the car and they look at these envelopes. The first envelope is Dennis's final will and testament. And the other envelope is a suicide note. No. Oh, my God. In this suicide note, Dennis admitted to no wrongdoing, but said instead that he had been the victim of emotional police brutality. Even in your fake death, you can't admit when you're wrong. The emotional police brutality had pushed him to commit suicide. So Ellen Harris summed up the contents of the note as follows. And then there's like a little like clip of what he really wrote right at the end. (laughs) She wrote, the note was a fascinating psychological profile of self-preoccupation, self-pity, blame, and projection. (laughs) Dennis blamed other people for his own misdeeds, and he pointedly implied that Julie had killed herself. He was explicit about how sexually aberrant she had been, claiming that his bride demanded what he called tender roughness, spanking, apparently. He whined over and over again that his life was ruined. Oh, my God. To the very end, Dennis was concerned with appearances. In headline-sized letters, he wrote, Mom and Dad and Graham, I love you very much, but this last loss, I just can't go on with it. Please forgive me. Please ask that Jeff Whitmayer pick out my clothes and tell the police not to use hooks if they don't have to. For his appearance, he didn't want the hooks to mar his body and face, or he didn't want them to drag the river to find nobody. He said, I am taking my final baptism and hope God forgives me for all the stress I put you through. God help me. So clearly Dennis wanted the authorities to think that he had jumped from the bridge. Unfortunately for Dennis, homicide detectives aren't just going to go, okay, I guess he's dead. Case closed. They're not? Oh, boy. (laughs) They're not just going to say, guess he jumped. Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so Dennis had hitchhiked to the airport when he used another alias, probably Jack Johnson, 
So then he got on a plane to California. He's coming out to you, Andy. We don't want you. (laughs) (laughs) So the man who gave him a ride eventually came forward, which this is crazy. The poor guy who gave him a ride to the airport realized that it was that guy when he saw him on the news. And he went to his attorney and was like, what do I do? And the attorney was like, oh, you're going to have to go to like all of these like hearings and depositions and trials. Like, just don't say anything. Oh, my God. Okay, I hope he fired that attorney. Yeah. And to this guy's credit, he was like, "Uh, yeah, I'm going to go to the police. So he said, yeah, this guy's obviously not dead. I drove him to the airport from that bridge. Also, can't walk like half a mile or a few blocks. He like hitchhikes in front of his car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Dennis was eventually apprehended in Santa Cruz. Lovely place to be apprehended. And... This was after he made like a ton of bonehead mistakes, like the ones we're talking about. He also called his parents and a couple of the girls he was dating from places he was staying at, which obviously they were tracking this because he was on the FBI's most wanted list at this point. He left some documentation that had his real name in one of the places that he stayed. I mean, he was just making mistakes left and right. He also like hooked up with this girl when he was trying to like live off the land. She was somebody who was like, who basically camped everywhere and she was like hiking a trail or something. And she was like, this guy didn't know what he was doing. And so they like hooked up together until she was like, I can't even stand him. You got to go away. So he was just like leaving a trail of people and witnesses and evidence in his, there was no way he wasn't going to get captured. Absolutely. How do you like break up with someone who's like living on the land though? Like you're like, you (laughs) walk that way. You're I'm going to go this way. You go that way. Okay. You just wake up really early and are like, you can keep the tent and you just run as fast as you can. So yeah, he had even called his parents and I think they have a recording of this saying that they should go to his uh, safety deposit box because he had stolen all of her mother's very expensive jewelry collection and put it in his own safe deposit box. Trash bag. Yeah. Also, he had taken all of these pictures prior to the murder of things in the house because he planned to file for insurance money. When he's dead. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the original plan was, but he had ahead of time, it was like still being processed, taking pictures of everything in the house. People were like, you wouldn't do that unless you were going to file an insurance claim. So that's evidence that it's premeditated that you were going to set this fire. No one just for fun takes a picture of everything they own. No. Chair. Table. Expensive jewelry my wife doesn't know I'm taking pictures of that doesn't belong to me. So he wanted his parents to go to the safety deposit box to retrieve the jewelry. To get the jewelry. They're like, keep us out of this. Please. Yeah. So it was a done deal. On July 3rd, 1986, Dennis was arrested for Julie's murder and extradited back to St. Louis to face a jury of his peers. His trial began just about one year after the murder on May 26, 1987. The prosecution argued that Dennis had married Julie, a woman he knew to be impressionable and unstable, in order to take her for every cent she was worth. When he tried to remove some of her money from the joint account and it wasn't there, and Julie began to push back and express her discontent, Dennis knew he had to take action before his cash cow slipped away. He concocted a plan to establish an alibi while on a business trip and then fly back to St. Louis under an alias to kill his wife. Before Julie could change power of attorney, her will, her life insurance beneficiary, or divorce him. Dennis had never intended to stay in this marriage. No one, not his parents, his colleagues, or his friends, 
or even the ex-wife that he had literally just divorced two months earlier, knew anything about this marriage. And I think that his parents had maybe met Julie once. But other than that, nobody knew that he was even dating her. Wow. Yep. So Dennis had worked under the false assumption that the fire would devastate everything, that it would burn up all the tape. It would burn up everything that was evidence of what had happened. He wanted Julie's death to appear a suicide. And I think the backup was, if it didn't look like a suicide, make it look like she was maybe having an affair with somebody else who had taped her up. Yeah, but like if you actually, if suicide was your first mission, then the tape wasn't ever going to work. She can't tape herself up like that. Yeah. There was some theory too that this wasn't supposed to be the actual murder, that this was something he was working up to. But when she started withdrawing her money and making it sound like maybe she wanted to get out of the relationship, that he had to go into panic mode so that this was not a very well thought through murder plot. I'd say. Yeah. And when it fell apart, he attempted to fake his own suicide and then went on the run, which is hardly the actions of an innocent man. The defense told a different story. They described Dennis as a good man, a man who worked hard and was wealthy enough in his own right as a senior consultant for Pricewaterhouse, a man who did not need his wife's money. Dennis's attorney claimed that Dennis's downfall came when he met Julie a mentally ill sexual pervert. Julie was the one who introduced Dennis to sexual bondage, not the other way around. Julie was promiscuous and had even had affairs with married men. It was her fantasy that Dennis participate in the bizarre rituals, and he only did so to please his wife. So this is like the opening statement, basically. It's so insane when defense attorneys feel okay to like completely drag the person who was murdered. Yes, and Ellen Harris talks about this in her book that we're going to get into more of the trial, but essentially a lot of speculation about Julie's sex life is allowed. That's not in fair. The trial. Like that should not be allowed at all. Like your defense should not be It was also stuff that wasn't proven. So we're going to get into some of the stuff they say about her and it's all things that have nothing to do with Dennis and it's all things that aren't proven at all. In fact, some people flatly deny them. And so Ellen Harris was saying that it's really screwed up and that I think in the state at this time, you could not bring up a woman who had been raped. Like you couldn't bring up her sexual history because it, if it didn't pertain to the specific incidents, the criminal rape, but they didn't have that law for murder victims. Now, at the same time, there were some elements of people describing things about Dennis and about his treatment of his ex and things that weren't allowed in because they'd be prejudicial. So the bad stuff that's not even true about Julie or is like true, but who cares, like that she had slept with people before marriage was getting let in. But the stuff about him that actually pertained to a cycle of abuse and a history of bondage, because he's literally, they're, they're saying that he knew nothing about it till he met Julie. All of that stuff is not being let in. It's insane. Yeah. So Ellen Harris was saying that it really matters what a judge decides to make admissible or not. It can color, obviously, what the jury is hearing. And it's very unfair. 
it's super unfair. And if it's one yeah. person who has had a, one negative experience in their life or doesn't like women or whatever the fucking case is, then it's literally persuades the entire case. That's not fair. Yeah. This is a really disgusting defense. We've seen it a lot and it seems like it's mostly in the older cases, which makes me hope that defense attorneys are realizing this isn't a good look and they're moving towards. It should be an automatic you're guilty. <laughs> when you decide to attack the victim. Yeah. So he went on in this opening statement to say that this was something Dennis did to please his wife. And as a result of Julie's demands and perversions, and an accident had occurred during sex, a fatal accident. Now, Dennis had made a horrible error in judgment by running from the scene instead of calling 911. But he was panicked, he was in shock, and he was scared. Oh. Dennis himself would tell the jury the truth, his attorney said. And the truth was that this was simply a tragic accident and not a homicide. So are you ready for Dennis's story? Dennis said that after he flew into St. Paul, he realized that his lover, Christy, that's the woman he sent the silky tie to, who he'd been seeing for the entirety of his courtship and marriage with Julie, had flown into St. Louis to see him. Apparently he had some note from her. And she was supposed to be there just for that weekend. And he had decided that he wanted to settle things with Julie and be together with her because I guess they, they had, he'd said at least that they were having troubles in their marriage and he had decided to commit to her. And so he wanted to end things with Christy, but he wanted to be a man about it and end things with her face to face. So after he gets into St. Paul and they said that the business trip was going to be more like four to six weeks instead of a week, he was like, okay, it's now or never. I'll just turn around and I'll fly back. So, of course, the question is, well, why didn't you use your name then? Why did you use an alias? Yeah, Mr. John Johnson. <laughs> to fly, Mr. John Johnson. He said that actually Julie often checked his flight itineraries and his flight schedule. And he didn't want her to even know that he was coming back to St. Louis to end this relationship with Christy. So he had to use a fake name so that Julie would not be able to find out that he was coming back to town to break up with his girlfriend. Now, it looks like Christy was actually in town and she was staying at a hotel that they stayed at together when she was there. But he claimed that he went to another hotel, a hotel they had never stayed at. And he said that he waited around for her because that's where they were supposed to be. And he tried to call her and she just wasn't there. So he got desperate and he didn't know what to do. So he called Julie at home and said, surprise, I'm home. And she said, OK, can you take a cab over because I'm already in bed? And no record of him taking this cab from the hotel to his house exists, by the way. But he said he took a cab over to the home. It was pretty late at night. And she was in a surprisingly good mood. He told Julie that he, you know, he came home to see her, that he wanted to hang out with her. And she said, let's have some champagne. Let's have some fun. I'm so glad you're home. This is a Monday night. This is not like a night you're not like, ooh, great. You'd be like, why are you home? And I have to get up really early for work. Yeah, not let's pop some champagne. This was their wedding champagne, too, that her brother had given them. So they popped the champagne. He says that they drank the whole bottle together. Afterwards, she was a little bit tipsy, but she said, quote, the lady has a request, which Dennis said he knew meant that she wanted her special tie you up, tape you up bondage sex. That's her special request. Dennis testified that this was the third time that they had done something like this and that when she had first introduced 
him to bondage, she had said, now you're part of the family. And his attorney like made him repeat that. And it's important for something later on. So he said by now they had finished the entire bottle of champagne and they were drinking screwdrivers. Dennis said that per Julie's instructions, I guess first he said that she tied him up, but then he got out of it and then she wanted him to tie her up. So he said that, yeah, she was tied really tight. She was bound with the tape very tightly, but that was her thing. That was like what got her off. And he said that per her instructions, he wound her head 26 times with the tape. He said he didn't notice that there wasn't a cloth between her hair and the tape. He didn't notice. He said he then taped the rest of her body using an extraordinary amount of athletic tape. That's what he was using. He said after she was taped that he planned to use a vibrator on her. That was like what she liked, that she wanted to be all taped up and then he would use a vibrator on her. But then he said when he was about to kiss his way up her leg to start the sex part, he got really sick. He said that he had drank too much and now he was like feeling like he was going to vomit. So he told her he was going to go be sick and that he'd be right back. So he went to the bathroom. He said that he must have vomited somewhere between five and 10 times. And in between like waiting to go vomit again, he passed out on the bathroom floor. So he says he passed out. He doesn't know when he came to, but when he came to, he rushed out to where Julie was and the rocking chair that she'd been tied to had fallen over and Julie did not appear to be breathing. Okay, so did he not mention the like gags that he shoved down her throat? He did not mention the gags. Did anyone else bring those up? The medical examiner brought it up. Okay, good. So then he decides to light the house on fire. Well, yeah, he said instead of calling 911 or even removing the tape from her face where her mouth was covered, I guess her, her nostrils were kind of peeking out. He said he blew air into her nostrils. That was his resuscitation attempt. He then said on the stand, this is a quote from this man at his testimony. When I realized she was dead, I threw a tantrum pounding on the floor saying, oh God, oh God, just self-pity. I decided my life was ruined, had gone through my mind. I don't know if this was right or wrong. You don't know if this was right or wrong to hide the body. I laid there for a while trying to think of what to do. I decided to move Julie into the garage. I was fluctuating between taking her someplace else or hiding her. He dragged her body tied to the chair into the garage. He placed her between their two cars in the tight space of the back wall. He said he covered Julie with an afghan and tucked her favorite teddy bear on her lap. Police found the afghan, but not the teddy bear. Dennis said that he then vacuumed the house twice, straightened up, showered, and dressed for the office. I decided that I didn't want to live anymore. I had seen a movie with Jimmy Stewart where he and his wife asphyxiated themselves in a car. I took an old rubber hose and taped it to the exhaust pipe and pushed it into the window of her car. After he started the engine of Julie's Buick, Dennis said that he curled up with his dead wife and waited to die, but the car died instead. Dennis tried five or six times. The car refused to run, he said. Angry, Dennis pulled the hose out and threw it into the trunk. He admitted that he then turned to arson. He said, quote, I wanted to be close to Julie. I went in the house and searched for one of her diaries just to read. I thought somehow that would make me feel closer to her. However, he said that reading this diary made him realize that she had been so unhappy and it put him into a rage. So he decided to start the fire with her diary because he said I needed to take my anger out on something. So I collected all of the paraphernalia, the tape, little cardboard rolls from the tape, some body paint, and I threw them in a bag and I put them in a car. 
He picked up a lighter in the kitchen, lit Julie's diary, and stuffed the burning paper into a bag of sexual paraphernalia. Dennis said that he threw this torch into the backseat of Julie's car. That ignited the garage, he said. And then he said he walked around the car and sat with Julie, and he pulled her close to him, and then he just decided to leave. This is him, by the way, this is him verbatim. Then I just decided to leave. I don't remember consciously deciding to leave, but that's what I did. I just started wandering around. I remember walking down the side street, and I ended up out on Manchester. A police car almost ran me down. It came down with lights and a siren. I didn't even think about what I was doing. I was just walking. I remember trying to get a ride. Disgusting. Yeah, so people were like, what the fuck? Like, what is this story? And then, oh, he also said that... (laughs) He thought about committing suicide, but instead he went to the airport. Oh, the, when he like wrote the suicide note, he's like, no, no, I was really suicidal. I was really going to kill myself. But then I decided just to go to California to find myself and find God. Uh, I don't know how the jury could be like not completely like squeamish and uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, Dennis's ex-wife, Karen, read this statement the statement that he made in the trial in the next day's paper and said the following to a reporter. She said, Dennis had a dream to become a writer. He said he wanted to write things that moved people. Well, this stuff is a joke. Who'd believe this? So it's obviously a load of hooey. It just defies all reason. No previous boyfriend or sexual partner of Julie said that she was into anything kinky whatsoever. Believe me, they would have been subpoenaed by the defense attorney if they could find anyone. They said, in fact, that she was rather naive and very vanilla in bed. Furthermore, the medical examiner said that there was zero, 0.000 alcohol found in Julie's system. So they could not have been throwing back bottles of champagne and screwdrivers if she had zero alcohol in her body. Also, 76 feet of tape was wrapped around her with surgical precision, they said. Yet he's trying to claim he was so drunk that he passed out immediately after wrapping her up, then how did he tape her so precisely? And again, the 26 times he wound the tape around her face, he didn't notice that there wasn't a barrier between her hair and the tape. That's not possible. Yeah. So none of these facts meant anything to the defense. They continued making their slanderous claims, going on so far to say that There were notes in her psychiatric file from her hospitalization in which she admitted that she had at some point engaged in kinky sexual behavior, although what she thought that was was never said. One person's kinky is another person's vanilla. Also, she had already been with him at this time, so that could have been, it could have been him. Exactly. And if she's like, it could have been fresh on her mind, she could have been concerned about what it meant for her mental health, like who knows? Yes. And then the other thing was that she, I think she had answered some question as far as like, my risky sexual behavior has gotten me in trouble in the past. And she like checked yes. But that's like, I mean, at this time, it could just be like, yeah, I had an affair with a married colleague that will get you in trouble. That's risky behavior. So they were saying they brought that stuff up. And then this was their big ringer. Oh, God. Yeah, their big ringer was that the defense had a friend of Julie's testify that when she came to visit her in the hospital, she was on a haze of antipsychotic drugs and that she was discussing essentially her mother's death and everything she was going through. And she said something along the lines of, I slept with my brother. So 
Ellen Harris and anything else that I read thinks that what was going on here was that she was talking about in the weeks after her mother's death, they like at one point slept in the same bed. It was just like grief, exhaustion, that there's no evidence that there was an incestual relationship going on at all. But the defense was really going for this because they had this one statement from a friend who they got that on a deposition. They also deposed Carter and asked him if he had ever tied a sexual partner up and he admitted that he had. He had done that with a sexual partner, not his sister, he was emphatic to say. And then third, they had Dennis's likely lie that when the first time she tied him up, she said, welcome to the family. Oh my God, I can't. So in the closing statements, the attorney brought up all these things and was like, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Like they were saying like, this is how sick this woman is. She's mentally ill. She's having sex bondage with her own brother. Like this poor guy got wrapped into this woman's insanity. And the brother, oh my gosh. I mean, he has now lost his entire family. I think in the deposition, something that like he had cheated on his wife or something, it came out too. And so she ended up divorcing him. No. Yeah, it was very, very bad. And this poor guy is just trying to like get justice for his sister. It was, this is just a terrible situation. So going back to the beginning, some part of me was like, this is, seems fabricated. And these are the three things that they're pulling on. You know, two of which they got from like a deposition where people swear to tell the truth. And then they're like being essentially cross-examined without their own attorney there. Sometimes people have their own attorneys in depositions, obviously. But if you're like a lay person, you might not think to include that. Yeah. And I'm like, but who would even like, where would you even get that in your head? And I was like, maybe this is projection. Maybe this is something he did to his sister. Because I remember thinking like, wow, the bullying must have been really extreme if she never wanted to sleep at her own house. If she was staying at her friend's house for weeks and weeks and months and months and refused to be under the same roof as a brother. Like, I was like, this makes me think that this is not something that he created, something he projected. Again, speculation, guys. Obviously, Cynthia isn't here to say anything because she passed away at 21. So the jury was instructed to find Dennis guilty or not guilty of one of the following charges. Murder in the first degree, second degree, or involuntary manslaughter. Okay. So it's essentially if they believed the prosecution, they were going to go with murder in the first degree. And I think if they believed the defense, they were going to go for involuntary manslaughter because I don't think any reasonable person could just acquit him on all charges. So after six hours of deliberation, the jury delivered a verdict. It was guilty. But of what do you think? Well, I mean, with your prediction that my rageometer was going to be high, I would say manslaughter. It was manslaughter. So also to what you said earlier, Andy, there was one guy, one man who believed his innocence, believed his story completely, and he essentially bullied everybody and 12 angry mend the jury without the finesse. Single angry man. Yeah. He like kind of got everyone to be on his side. Now, it only took them six hours to deliberate. So I'm like, you could have fought harder if you didn't believe it, rest of the jury. But again, there was a lot of information that wasn't allowed in. So that was what some people said later on. Some of the juries actually went to the prosecutor and said, I read about the case later on in the newspaper and I found out all these things and I wish that had been presented. And the prosecutor's like, I couldn't present it. It was ruled out. 
And so they said that they would have changed how they felt if they had known X, Y, and Z that wasn't allowed in. And then there was one woman who was so sick to her stomach about everything that happened that she called out of work for two weeks after the trial. And when she came back, she said to her boss, quote, never again will I let someone change my mind. I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. So there were some regrets about delivering this verdict. Carter, Julie's brother, was obviously crushed. And the biggest thing he wanted people to know when he talked to the media was what a wonderful, loving person she was because her whole persona, her reputation, who she was, was being dragged through the mud. And he's like, nobody knows what this woman went through. That at like 19, 20 years old, she was like fully taking care of her entire family, like trying to figure out what nursing home my dad was going to go to. She was planning funerals. She was at the hospital. She was coming up like with treatment plans with doctors. Like she didn't have a life. Like every other young person got to have a life. And now this is how she's being repaid. And Karen Dennis's ex-wife said to the papers that she believed that he had killed Julie for more than just the money. She said she, she knew he wanted the money because he wanted to invest that money and set himself up as some rich stock guy. But she said she believed that more than just the money, it was about control over Julie, and he was losing control over her. Terrifying. Dennis was sentenced to the maximum of seven years in prison. Wow. However, the authorities refused to let him go so easily. The state charged Dennis with second-degree arson, which he had admitted to on the stand, and tampering with evidence. Well, Dennis was very quickly convicted of those charges in July of 1988. He fired his attorney and his new attorney successfully peeled for a new arson trial based on the fact that his old attorney, which is the one who totally got him off for murder, had not wanted him to testify in the trial. And I guess when the judge, you know, the judge always asks, like, you know that you have the ability to say something in your own defense when they say that they're not going to testify. Yep. I guess how he answered it was, well, I'm just doing what my attorney says I should do. So he left it like that vague instead of saying, yes, I know. And so his new attorney was able to appeal and say that he did not actually know that his attorney had not listened to him and that he wanted to testify and was unable to say anything in his own defense. So he got another trial. Here we go again. And this time, Dennis, I mean, his first attorney who got him off with that horrible defense that apparently worked was right to not let him testify because everyone hated him and they voted to convict him in 90 minutes. And also, like, how is he going to keep his, like, lies straight? Oh, it was a mess. Yeah. I mean, it always is when these egomaniacs get on the stand. So Dennis was convicted to the maximum of the two sentences. I think one was, like, five years and one was seven years for the arson and the tampering of 12 years. But he managed to get out of jail in 1993. The murder occurred in 86, and he was out of jail by 1993, according to an Orlando Sentinel article from the same year, 1993. He was released after being credited with time served and good behavior in prison. So I didn't get a chance to listen to this, but I was talking to Heather about this case, and she said that there was also 
another podcast that covered this and she listened to it. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but it was True Crime Brewery did this episode as well. And she said at the end of their episode that they said that there was a woman who dated him after he got out who said that she had been attacked, I believe, by him and that she was terrified of him. And so I think that she had to get a restraining order from him. But he was on house arrest until 1996, maybe as a result of what he did to this woman. And then he was off house arrest and off parole as of 1996. And from what I could find, and I talked to Heather about this too, because she helps me with research. I don't know where he is. He'd be 70 years old. Wow. So he's 70 years old somewhere. Or, I mean, he could have passed away. The problem is Dennis Bullock is also a very common name. Yeah. And he could have been using one of his aliases. He could have been using one of his many aliases. So who knows? In conclusion, if you are going to come up with some fake aliases, come up with something more creative than John Jackson, Jack Johnson, Jim Jimerson, Louis Louison. <laughs> come up with something better than that, guys. Be creative. Also, if you're going to come up with like a whole story for a trial too, you should really think about the fact that you really only drink screwdrivers in the morning. Oh my gosh, Andy, that's so true. I didn't even think about that. I should have thought about that in seven years working in nightlife. <sighs> I don't think I ever had anyone ask for a screwdriver. No, I know. It's, I think it's so rare. Like it's a morning drink. <laughs> it's definitely a morning drink. Makes me want one right I know, now. It does. <laughs> And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.